Heavenly Father, what a precious gift we have before us to know that we have the words of the living God and that we can understand them as we read them by your Holy Spirit's help. Lord, we beg of you this morning that you may give us your Holy Spirit in abundance. May you particularly speak through me this morning. May you keep error far from my lips. May there be a guard over my mouth so that what I say this morning is true and is accurate from your word. And may the people, as they listen to what I say, examine your word closely to see if what I say is indeed from your word. And if it is not, give them the boldness to reject it and cling to your word rather than cling to what Joel says. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you learn to do something? You want to know how to do something? How do you, and you know that you don't know how to do it, how do you learn to do it? This week, I had to learn how to use a particular piece of uh, computer software. For a long time now, I've been accumulating different passwords all across the internet at all different websites, and I have low-quality passwords and high-quality passwords, and just remembering them all and then having to enter them in at different sites that um, don't allow quick and easy access is kind of a hassle, slows me down. So there are password managers that you can get, and there's one in particular that I've been using for a while, and it works quite effectively, but I've encountered a few problems with it. And I've tried to solve these problems, learn how to use this program effectively. And one way that you learn how to do something is just trial and error, isn't it? You get something, you just have a go. You try and use these small bits of intellect that you already have, and you try and understand how to do what it is you want to do. But in this case, that hadn't worked for me. I've been using it for a while. So what did I have to do? Well, I have to go and find an instruction manual. And thankfully, this, um, this particular program has a website. Go there, look at the instruction manual for what I wanted to do, and I couldn't find it. And I'm like, oh, what else? YouTube videos. They're the, the run-of-the-mill now for do-it-yourself stuff. You want to know how to do something. Some kind person somewhere has made a video of themselves doing what it is you want to do, and you can then follow their example. And so I went to YouTube and tried to find what I was wanting to do by the instructions uh, given by different people there. But unfortunately, I was unsuccessful, and so what did I have to do? I'm still trying trial and error. I'm still trying to work it out just for myself. There are many things we want to do. And last week, I encouraged us as Christians to suffer unjustly. What are we supposed to do as Christians? One of the things we're called to do is suffer unjustly. So you know it's the right thing to do, or hopefully you do now, after the sermon last week, or maybe you knew before I preached, but how do you suffer unjustly? Well, last week, I also pointed out how we are to suffer unjustly. We're meant to follow the example of Jesus, and we touched on it lightly there. But this week, I want to look more specifically at Jesus' example of how do we suffer unjustly. What is the YouTube video for how to suffer unjustly? Well, we don't have video of Jesus Christ 
Um, he came at a time when video hadn't been invented and YouTube was a long way off in history. But we do have something I think is better than YouTube. We have God's Word that is an instruction manual for us as to how we are to suffer unjustly. Why is it better than YouTube? Well, it doesn't have visual, and we love the visual. It doesn't have that. But it is better than YouTube for a number of reasons. And one of the big reasons is, as God's word, it doesn't make mistakes. One of my frustrations in looking at YouTube videos for my software program that I'm trying to get a handle on is there were mistakes in some of them, and a lot of them were outdated. They were for previous generations of this software program that I'm after, and so I couldn't, I couldn't use them because a newer version has come out. What about God's word? No mistakes and timeless. There's no newer version that's come out of us and we find that God's word is now not applicable to us. No, it still applies today. It is better than a YouTube video. Here we have the instruction manual of Jesus as how to suffer unjustly. So, if you've got your Black Church Bibles there, I encourage you to open up to page 1201 and we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 23 as an instruction manual as to how we are to suffer unjustly, following Jesus' example. So what's the first part of Jesus' example? The first thing Jesus did was be just. And I emphasised this last week, but I want to emphasise it again because Peter emphasizes it quite clearly for us here. Jesus was just. And so my first main point is Jesus did no sin. And where do we find the information for that? Well, we find it here in 1 Peter 2, but he's also quoting the Old Testament there. We have a testimony from the Old Testament that Jesus did no sin. This quote, verse 22, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, comes from Isaiah the prophet. The NIV translation, very helpfully, tells us exactly where. Whenever you have a quote from the Old Testament, it has a little footnote there and guides it down uh, so you don't have to... um, You can be lazy and not have to remember yourself. So if you look there, there's a little F. Drop down to the margin, Isaiah 53, verse 9, which we just read uh, a little while ago. We have the testimony of Isaiah there that Jesus did what? He committed no sin, no sin at all, and no deceit was found in his mouth. What's deceit? Deceit is deceiving people, lying. And that is something that is in every person's mouth. Every human has deceit in their mouth, except one human, Jesus Christ. He did not have deceit in his mouth. And this, remember, this idea of unjust suffering comes in the context of slavery and masters having a servant and a master and the unjust suffering that we experience as a, as a servant for someone else. Uh, but we can take it for a broader idea here of unjust suffering as a whole. But if you think about servants, what is one of the easiest things for them to do It's to lie with their mouths and try and get away with it. As a servant, it's easy to deceive your boss and he doesn't know that you're deceiving him about what you've been doing. One of the big problems with servants uh, working as an employee for employers is when it comes to money, transactions. And employers have to put all these limits on employees so that 
money isn't stolen, particularly when it comes to customers and transactions that way. Uh, making sure that the employee isn't deceitful about how much money has been given over in the day's work. Deceit is very easy. And then, of course, when it comes to employee and employer relationships, slander, gossip, very easy to talk about the boss behind his back and to say things that aren't quite true, to get back at them for what they've been doing to you. But Jesus, what does he do as a servant? He has no deceit in his mouth whatsoever. And we see that in the New Testament. We've got the testimony of Isaiah here in the Old Testament. We've also got the testimony of the New Testament, where we look at the Gospels and look at the way Jesus behaved through his life. He did no sin. You do not see him do one wrong thing. And you see that people continually try to trick him with his mouth. Get him to utter something wrong with his mouth. The Pharisees do it again and again. They come up to him with difficult questions, just itching to find something wrong come out of his mouth. But does Jesus do it? No. He does no sin and no deceit comes out of his mouth. So when they try to put him on trial, they can't pin anything on him. They have all these false witnesses come forward and try and say, he did this. And they can't do it because... The witnesses don't correlate. They don't add up together. And it's because they never witnessed Jesus say one wrong thing. The only thing they can pin on him at his trial is that he claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God. And that's what they condemn him for, which isn't false at all. It's true. They just don't like that it's true. And so they condemn him for death there. Nothing wrong comes out of Jesus' mouth at all. He commits no sin. So you want to know how to suffer unjustly? Well, the first thing you need to do is keep yourself from sin and particularly your mouth from sin. A lot of suffering is unjustly put upon you because of what you say with your mouth. And if you want to suffer justly, let your mouth have free reign and you will soon suffer justly. But if you're going to suffer unjustly, you've got to watch your mouth because things come out of it all the time that will give you punishment. But if you want to suffer unjustly, then you need to watch it. And if you don't commit deceit with your mouth and you do suffer, that's when you start to suffer unjustly. All right, what's the next thing that Jesus did? Well, my second main point is that Jesus did suffer. How-to guide on how to suffer unjustly? Firstly, be just, don't know sin. Secondly, suffer. Jesus did indeed suffer. What did he suffer? Verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him. What did Jesus suffer? He suffered insults. People called him names, all kinds of names, and particularly names that associated with sin. They called him a sinner. They called him a friend of sinners. They also called him after specific sins, that he was a blasphemer, that he was a drunkard, that he was gluttonous that he was a Sabbath breaker, that he was a deceiver of the people, a perverter of the nation. They called him names that were not true. They insulted him to his face. And then after they're done with all the sort of sins that they could try and pin on him, they just plain got nasty. You know how you can insult people by trying to accuse them of something that's not quite true? But then you can just use nasty names for them. What do they call Jesus? They called him illegitimate. What's 
the equivalent of that today? Well, it's a word that has become a curse word, bastard, but was a legitimate word for illegitimacy. But people use it today, same way that they did with Jesus, that they start to question his birth, say, son of Mary, not son of Joseph, son of Mary, because we know that there's something dodgy about your birth. And so they just get insulting with Jesus. They also just start to say, demon-possessed. You're demon-possessed. Not a particular crime that he's done, not a particular sin, just you're demon-possessed. And another one is Samaritan. They called him a Samaritan. Are we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed, they say in John's Gospel? Samaritan, what are they doing there? Starting to get racist. And if there's something we know in our world is racism. And we know that people love to call other people by a name of a particular race as a slur. And that's what they did with Jesus. He suffered the insults. People trying to call him names of a particular race that they didn't like, that they should have embraced and loved. And Jesus loved the Samaritans. We see that with the Samaritan woman at the well. He loved them. But they want to make him of a different race because it's an insulting term to them. And they want to pin that on him. And then he just didn't suffer insults. He suffered in general. We see in verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He suffered, not just insults. He suffered in general terms. He suffered physically. As he goes to the cross, we see that particularly, the physical suffering that he experiences there. Jesus suffered. So the second point in our how-to guide on how to suffer, we saw the first point is be just, do no sin. Second is do suffer. And I want to get that into your head, that as a Christian, I spoke about it last week, but I want to speak about it again because it's so hard for us to understand that part of being a Christian is to suffer unjustly. It is part of the Christian life. And we live in a society, in a country, and in the Western countries particularly, where there are people out there talking about Christianity and saying that part of being a Christian is to prosper. It's called prosperity doctrine. And there are churches in Sydney that teach it week by week that if you are a Christian, you will prosper materially in this world. And if you do not, it shows that you are not a true Christian. And it is wrong. Peter condemns it here. God condemns it through Peter here. That part of being a Christian is to suffer and suffer unjustly. It's just the stupidest thing to say that to become a, to be a Christian means that you're going to prosper in this world. Because what are they saying when someone says that? They're saying that the apostles had very little faith whatsoever. What happened to most of the apostles? They all got martyred, and John's there in prison at the end of his life. And Jesus himself... What about him? How much faith does he have when you compare his material wealth on this earth to his faith? Very little faith he must have had because he had nothing there at the end of his life. And through his life, he lived a very poor existence. As a Christian, you are called to suffer as part of your Christian life. That does not mean that there aren't wealthy Christians, but we do not say 
that Christians will prosper materially as a result of their faith. No, some of us are called to suffer terribly, not particularly here in Australia, but some Christians around the world at the moment are suffering incredibly. And they have strong, healthy faith, not poor, weak faith, and that is why they're suffering. No, it's part of a Christian life. How do you suffer unjustly? Well, firstly, you're just, and secondly, you suffer. You suffer insults. It will happen. You may not suffer like Jesus did the physical suffering, but you will suffer insults as soon as you become a Christian, usually, or soon after. Even this month, I was called crazy by a friend for believing in hell, for believing in eternal punishment of hell. He said, I think that's crazy, Joel. Kind of an indirect way, but he was saying, and I think you're crazy for believing it, Joel. And people will say that to you as well. And then just this week, I had another minister, another Protestant minister, call me harsh for saying that a Christian must live out good works in their life, that a Christian should tell the truth, and when they are seen to be lying, they must be confronted about it, and if they're unrepentant about the truth... Their lies, if they're unrepentant about it, then I can't embrace them as a brother. That if someone is unrepentant in their sin and it's clearly that they're in sin, then I have to say, what you're doing is wrong. And I'm concerned about your faith. I don't care what you say with your mouth that you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. I want to know what you do with your life as well. And this other Protestant minister said, Joel... That's harsh. That's harsh. And that hurt. It's coming from another minister. So it hurts even more so than from someone else. This friend of mine who called me crazy for believing in hell, well, I expect him to do that. But another Christian minister to say that I'm harsh for expecting someone to live out what they proclaim, that hurts. And it will happen to you as well. People will call you harsh. They'll call you a lot worse things than that. And they will do it because, as a Christian, you are called to unjust suffering and you're following the how-to guide of Jesus. What's the third thing that Jesus did in the how-to guide of unjust suffering? Well, the third thing Jesus did was not retaliate or threaten. Verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Jesus did no sin, he then suffered, and then what happened? This is the interesting part. He did not retaliate. He didn't get angry back. He didn't condemn them. He didn't call down judgment upon them, which he could have done. No, he didn't retaliate back, and he didn't take up a sword and start attacking them. No, he did not retaliate, and he did not threaten. Verse 23 When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Threats are so easy. They're so appealing to us because even if you don't have the capacity to fulfill the threat, you can still make the threat. And you hope that they don't know that you can't fulfill your threat. And so you can watch them squirm at the fear of what might come from you later on down the track. 
Threats are the, the thing that you can do when you're pretty much powerless to do anything yourself. And so you can throw them out there and cause the person to be a bit anxious in their heart. You can't get them quite back for what they've done to you, but you can at least make them squirm. What did Jesus do? Did he threaten? No. He made no threats to them at all. So how do you suffer unjustly? No sin, suffer. And don't retaliate. Don't threaten back. Don't retaliate means what? You don't get angry back and you don't repay them back for what they've done to you. You don't take it out on the persecutors. And also, if you don't retaliate, that also means you don't, re- you don't take it out on somebody else that you can persecute easily and the persecutor you leave be because you know you haven't got the strength to do it. It's this whole idea of Freud's transference idea, that we transfer something to somebody else, and some psychologists even encourage it. You are angry about your boss at work? Well, take your anger out on me. Don't bottle it up. Bring it out upon me. Or get a punching bag. Hang that up. Punch it a lot. Get angry at that. Retaliate on that. Or no one advises this, but this often happens. You kick the cat or the dog. That's what you do. Does a Christian do that? No, he does not retaliate. He does not kick the dog. He does not kick the cat. He doesn't punch the wall in anger. He doesn't punch the persecutor and he doesn't punch anything. He does not get angry. Do you see Jesus transferring his anger to something else, to an inanimate object? No. You see him not retaliating at all. And you don't threaten. Easy to make those threats, but... You're called to unjust suffering in the way that Jesus endured unjust suffering. Other people can endure unjust suffering, but they do it in a bad way. Jesus here does it without retaliating and without threatening. You may say, that's ridiculous. I can't retaliate. What can I do? What can I do? Do you want me to suppress it and bottle it up, Joel? My anger against them for what they've done? Well... What's the next, the last part we see here of Jesus' how-to guide on suffering? What does Jesus do lastly? Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus handed himself over to God. God is the one who judges justly, and Jesus gave himself over to God. He said, this is wrong, that what they're doing, but I will not retaliate. I am going to hand it over to you, God. And we see him do that in the New Testament. What does he say? Your will be done. He follows the Father's will, not his own will. He hands it over to God. So what are you to do? You are to follow the example of Jesus here. Not bottle up your anger. But hand your anger, your problem, your suffering over to God who rights all wrongs. Retaliation and threatening are natural responses for those people who depend upon themselves and believe that God does not have control of the situation. When you retaliate, you're saying, I need to be involved here because God can't write this. And so you're denying the sovereignty of God that he can correct it. You think you need to correct it and not God. So you, as a Christian, are meant to believe that God is sovereign, that he does correct all wrongs, 
And so you hand it over to God. How do you hand your suffering over to God, your unjust suffering? How do you do that? Well, first thing you can do is hand yourself, hand it over to God by handing it over to the authorities. Remember earlier, why are the authorities there? Why is the government there? Why are the police there? Well, Peter told us right back earlier, chapter 2, verse 13, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. God sends these people, puts them in their place to correct wrongs. And so it is right when someone hurts you that you go through the proper channels and hand yourself, hand this problem over to those who have the authority to stop it happening to you anymore. They're there for a reason, the authorities. And it stops you, when you retaliate, sinning. When you have the authorities step in, usually they're a little bit more cool-headed than you are, a little more wisdom involved, and they can come in, and they often have the power that you don't, to break up the problem. And we see that with Jesus. Did Jesus run away from the authorities? In his day? No, he hands himself over to Pilate. He hands himself over to the chief priests. He gives himself over to the authorities. And that's part of handing yourself over to the authorities instituted by God. That's handing yourself over to God who judges justly. And then you let God sort your suffering out. And either two things will happen. One, the people will be punished. And that can happen through the authorities... Now, it doesn't always happen through the authorities. You can have bad authorities in power. God has still put them there, but they aren't judging justly. And we see that with Jesus Christ. He hands himself over to Pilate, and where does that get him? On the cross. And sometimes that will happen to you. You hand yourself over to the authorities, and punishment isn't met there. But then you can recognize that punishment will one day be met when God brings everyone before the judgment throne. And the persecutor that you've struggled with is punished for eternity in hell because of what they've done to you. God will judge them and punish them accordingly in this world or at least in the next. And you can have the peace of mind in handing the problem over to God that justice will be done. That's the first thing that could happen, that they are punished either here or in the next life. The other thing that could happen is that Jesus is punished for them. That the punishment that they deserve for persecuting you is taken by Jesus Christ at the cross. Because that is what Christianity is all about. It's about Jesus taking the punishment of people that persecute unjustly and many other sins upon his shoulders and bearing that punishment for you so that you do not have to be punished eternally in hell. If you're not a Christian, I want you to consider this morning very carefully what you've done with your life and how many times you have been unjust in your behaviour towards those around you. We as Christians do not claim that we are not unjust persecutors. Yes, we recognise that we've done the wrong thing many times. We have not followed Jesus' how-to guide many, many times. But we will not be punished because Jesus was punished for us. But if you are outside of Christ, 
I want to warn you this morning, the Bible is very clear. You will be punished one day for your unjust behavior, for the deceit that comes out of your mouth and for the sin that you have committed. You will be punished. But there is a way to escape that. And that is to repent of your sins and believe that Jesus took the punishment for you. That your sin, your deceit, your unjust persecution is transferred over to Jesus Christ. And for us as Christians, being persecuted unjustly, this is the thing that we should want to see. Do you really want to see your boss that you do not like go for eternal punishment in hell? Or would you rather they became a Christian like you? And like you, escape the punishment that you deserve. And we see Jesus doing this at the cross. What does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that should be our response in handing it over to God. We should also include a prayer in there of, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We hand it over to God by handing it over to the authorities, but we also hand it over to God by recognising that they will be punished one day. But we hope that Jesus takes the punishment for them. They stop persecuting us, not because they're punished by the authorities or something else in their life, but they stop persecuting us and making us suffer unjustly because they've become a Christian. And they're now not just your boss. They are your brother or sister in Christ. That's what we should want for those who persecute us. We shouldn't want to punch them. We should want to see them become a Christian. We shouldn't want to threaten them. We should want to see them become a Christian. So what about you? Do you suffer unjustly the way Jesus did? And then do you follow his perfect example? Do you commit no sin? Do you strive to be like him? Commit no sin and have no deceit in your mouth. So when you do suffer, it is because it is unjust suffering. Do you accept suffering as part of your life? Or do you get angry at God when you suffer? Do you not retaliate or threaten So often as Christians we fail. We want to retaliate. We want to threaten back. But we've got to remember what Jesus did. He is our how-to guide on how to suffer unjustly. And then do you entrust yourself to God? Entrust your suffering and entrust your persecutors to God and cry out that they may be forgiven through Jesus being punished for them. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus Christ and that this example is one that has no mistakes in it and that it is timeless. It is applicable today just as much as it was applicable to the first church in the first century. Lord, we pray that we may follow his example by being just and then suffering and accepting the suffering, just like he accepted it. And Lord, we pray that you may help us not to retaliate when we suffer, not to threaten back, but instead to hand our persecutors over to you, hand them over to the authorities that you have put in place, and then hand them over to you, knowing that you will right all wrongs. And we pray that particularly we may have such a heart for our persecutors that we may want to see them 
become Christians and the punishment that they deserve be paid upon Jesus. And Lord, we pray for any non-Christians who are here this morning. Lord, we pray that they may consider the unjust suffering that they have caused to others in their life, the sin, the deceit from their mouths, and may cry out against the warning that they will be punished one day and instead turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. And we pray this in his name. Amen.